You're listening to the following program on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network, where independent creators and fans of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and gaming meet to create, stream, and support the shows that they love. Creator-distributed, fan-supported, that's TFN. Find this and many more great programs at watch.thefantasy.network slash audio. You're listening to the following program on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network, where independent creators and fans of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and gaming meet to create, stream, and support the shows that they love. Creator-distributed, fan-supported, that's TFN. Find this and many more great programs at watch.thefantasy.network slash audio. We talk a lot about living history, looking at people going about their routines, being a part of their societies, and preserving their own cultures and past. But that leaves out the role of the dead, especially the dead that still move around. Welcome to all, living or not, to another episode of Vorpal History. I'm your host, Ashford Wilhelm, and today we're going to look at some of the basics behind what's sometimes called the spoopy science, and how it caused a major moral conflict in America's early days. Our nation has been through many military altercations, and the Civil War, one of them at least, was fought over how we treat the dead. Not many people make a distinction between the kinds of reanimations that are possible, nor the laws surrounding them, possibly because they're all pretty creepy when you get down to it. It's also a source of one of those fears where you spend your whole life doing a job you don't like much only to die and find out that not a lot is going to change. Okay, that got depressing real quick. We may seem a more enlightened age now, where deep necromancy is illegal and basic reanimation is strictly regulated. According to the law-talking guys I've consulted, getting stuff that was once dead to start moving again is permitted so long as the motive force isn't sentient or sapient. It's fine to use skeletons to be moving Halloween decorations, or as an extra set of arms to help carry in the groceries. It's when someone starts tying souls to corpses in order to give them a few more IQ points that things get messy. Today, we have necrocoders, or people who are so skilled at creating if-then matrices that their constructs can appear to be as versatile as their less savory counterparts. The famous Turing Revenant could appear to carry on conversations or solve simple puzzles, but it was all thanks to artificial interessence. Coding such complicated systems takes a lot of work and study, where just grafting the spirit of the recently dead to a vessel of some kind is relatively easy. Dead things are amazingly easy to come by, especially when trying to establish settlements in a new and hostile environment. Some argue that using the deceased as a source of labor, defense, or other service in such dire times is warranted, or at least somewhat excusable. What it led to, however, is a lot harder to excuse. The acceptance of the reanimated dead was helped along by the wealthy who could afford to not only have multiple undead servants, but could hire artisans to make them less disturbing, if not attractive. A corpse that's used to till the soil dressed in rags while attracting flies is nightmarish, but if you can get scrimshaw carving, gold inlay, soft leather accents, and something resembling formal wear on a cleaned and preserved formerly alive person, then it can fit in with the heirloom furniture that it dusts on command. Why this was more prevalent in America has numerous causes. 
The religious taboos were curtailed a bit when the country was founded thanks to the churches competing to dominate the New World, since that could put potential congregants off. Also, if people were using undead to reap and sow, then that's more potential money for the collection box. There were plentiful sources of unclaimed bodies to be had, from former failed colonies to people and creatures the early settlers encountered. Properly raised, some undead could last for generations, and repairing an existing formerly alive was often less costly than producing a new one. This led to even more problems once the full extent of the process became known. Quite often, mashing together parts from different beings or species would result in the original occupant of the original body having to deal with soul stuff from the other parts. This wasn't found out until much later, but it had been suspected as replacing the zombie butler's arm with one from a former soldier could result in rather rough handling of the family china. Further entangling the issue was the legal aspect. Uh, wills have long contained clauses regarding resurrection or reviving for certain purposes, like providing testimony or opinions, or in some cases, instructions to reinstate someone among the living, if possible. This peculiar area of law trickled down to the lower classes, where some people would sign contracts allowing their bodies to be reanimated after they died in exchange for modest fees, released from criminal charges, or other small considerations. That these were often signed under duress, or by less than sympathetic relatives, was overlooked to secure corpses, and, as was too often the case, souls. Until the age of thanatic coding, just making dead stuff move around without involving activities that were much more than complicated taxidermy wasn't all that useful. Tales of students reanimating limbs and using them for pranks date back centuries. To make undead things do specific tasks required a lot of preparation and resulted in a very limited use, usually, person-shaped item. Making a skeleton that would attack anything entering a room was simple, but making it so that the skeleton could discriminate between friend or foe was often far more costly and complex than just hiring someone to guard your things. Binding what is commonly called the soul of someone to a corpse solved a lot of these coding issues. These undead could understand language, be given more complex tasks, and even behave like living beings when properly disguised. The issue was that it required bindings that enforced obedience, which was on top of the discomfort that comes from having one's essence bound to something that was well past its freshness date. So if you didn't know this or were desperate enough to sign away your corpse or a relative helped you with the paperwork, you could find yourself still working for the man long after your squishy bits had ceased functioning. And this was with a legal framework present, unlike in the Dunwellmish colony. The laws of their homeland were supposed to be in effect, but given the kingdom's reach was severely limited and the charters for colonies gave the governors lots of leeway, it wasn't much of a concern. By the time it had become a more common practice, those who benefited from it far outnumbered those who wanted it outlawed. Adventuring was far easier to do when the farms were being run by things that didn't need to eat, and predators were far less likely to attack the farmhands when they had little meat on their bones. Guard duty could be handled by the formerly alive about as well as the living, given the enthusiasm one would have for the job who would rather be out finding dragons to slay. It should be noted that the supposed experts on such practices assured anyone who asked that the soul attached to an earthly corpus was in no more or less discomfort than they had been in life. If that didn't work on any inquisitorial inquisitors, there was always the paperwork to fall back on to declare it was legal, if not moral. It's really depressing how many things in our planet's past fall into that description. While many churches decried the use of necromancy, especially the soul-binding kind, 
It wasn't until several freed undead gave their testimonies about what unlife was like after being brought back to the material world and put into bodies that were at best fixer-uppers. This passage from the testimony of one Francisci d'Artolio, whose still animate form was found standing at its post in the wine cellar of Castle Wormont after being there for well over three centuries. The family had long since abandoned their ancestral home, and the lower areas had been buried under rubble of poorly maintained walls, which included Francisci's post. Hi, this is Klaus Holm, and I am the creator of Tempest Investigations. If you like TV shows like Buffy, Angel, and Supernatural, you should check out Tempest Investigations. Listen to it on TFN, creator-distributed, fan-supported. From the Dipswitch Department of Artificial Engineering, Professor T. Irazin overseeing Archdean. Subject, Necromantic Reanimation, Recovered from Castle Wormont Ruins. After determining that the subject was largely intact apart from severe rot to its uniform, it was with great difficulty and secrecy that permission was granted to attempt to free the will of the force motivating the subject's animation for the purposes of studying the results of the necromantic arts to a degree previously forbidden by law and the reanimation guilds. Suitably restrained, the undead's right hand was allowed access to pen, ink, and parchment. Then its obedience sigils were circumvented via applied use of specially prepared alchemical pigments. Subject appears to be in distress. That wasn't as satisfying to write as I'd hoped. Also, yes, of course I would be in distress after being locked in this corpse, made to serve buffoons, then sealed in the dark for hundreds of years with wine I couldn't drink, even if I'd been allowed to. Are you dim? Let's focus on why we're here. What was it like when you were made undead? Oh, let me think. I believe I died first. Would you like to tell me and future academics any details about that? Never work for the Wormont family if you don't want to experience it sooner rather than later. They prefer to poison their victims, by the way. And you knew this when you entered their service? Are you sure you're in a profession involving education? You don't seem to be very good at it. Though being chained up and interrogated does remind me of it's a school, so perhaps techniques have just gotten more intense. I'm trying to record your testament for both those well-versed in necromancy and those who aren't. Which are you? Could we return to how you came to be as you are? Very well. No, it wasn't widely known at the time. They apparently decided that training new staff to their exacting standards and to have a familiarity with their estate was too time-consuming and costly. So rather than have new people learn the ropes, they just start turning those who were experienced into ready-made eternal servants. What was the process of being bound to your current form like? Have you ever been covered in honey, beset by bees, then set on fire and pushed off a cliff? No. Mm, pity. Because I lack a frame of reference? Because I really don't like you very much. I am doing this for the benefit of others. Any suffering or discomfort you've experienced could inform those who make our laws regarding the works that made you what you've become. Oh, well, in that case, yes. This is an existence I would only wish on the Wormont family down to their surviving heirs. I experienced what seemed like a momentary taste of peace and serenity that Holy Machina had prepared for my part of eternity when I felt claws dig into my being and drag me back to the world I had come from. 
Every moment feels like barbs are ripping at the flesh I no longer have, while salt is poured into the wounds. The only respite I had was when obeying commands, and even those were full of talons made of pain, awaiting any deviation or failure. I believe the first agony came when I dropped a teacup while dusting a hutch. Thankfully, the then mistress of the house decided I should be fitted with leather gloves over the exposed bones in my fingers to allow for a firmer grip. You couldn't rebel. My bonds are inlaid across my bones, traced in carvings and metalwork. Even the meager freedom you've granted me wouldn't let me do more than perhaps rise from the slab I'm on and scrawl obscenities on whatever was within reach. Even thinking of disobeying caused me to feel like I was ablaze, which was only useful if I imagined I felt cold. How did you prevent yourself from going mad? Apparently, that's a part of the binding's effects. I can't say if it's to help keep me in line, or done on purpose for extra cruelty. A bit of both, I would suspect. And there were others made after you, yes? Oh, a great many. I was ordered to help prepare the revival chamber, as Lord Arcot Wormont called it on numerous occasions. I'd been kept in the lower areas of the castle until the entire staff had been converted, as he put it. We were given masks and other adornments to wear as we served his guests to Olusun, who were being silent and respectful. Soon Arcot taught his craft to other relatives, and they began making more of us to serve anyone who could pay his fees. Speaking of which, why haven't you just gone and purchased your own reanimated person and asked them all these questions in the past? Because our department's budget barely covers chalk and parchment, the Necromantic Association's frown on others taking their work apart, and even if we had the money... It's difficult to justify spending on illegal activities. Well, apart from the alchemy department. Yeah, fair enough. Say, is there a reward for turning in necromancers? I believe there is. Why? I can give you the names of everyone Arcot and his apprentices trained. Well, they're probably dead. The best we could find would be their descendants. Who can be blackmailed? You'd be swimming in chalk and parchment. Let's end the official record for the moment. Eric. A rich white mama's boy. I'm a man. I'm like a superhero. Boom, boom, fire power. Wakes up in a burning town. Mark gets it. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Go! To fulfill his quest for steak. Uh, bruh. Mind blown. In real life. Interesting seeing all of you. Right, Sally, right! I'm full of beer. Where's Eric? What does she do with Eric? Order! Order, I will have order in this court. We cannot be civil in this matter. I will remove all but the counsel and jury. The Resonance, now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. And in exchange for his information about being re-alive but not really, Francisi was released from his bonds. Unfortunately, he found that no one worshipped Holy Machina anymore, and no one was answering at the ethereal glade, which looked like it hadn't been tended properly in decades. Francisi took up haunting Professor Erasin until he could obtain help from the Theological Studies Department regarding where he could spend his afterlife in relative comfort. This was the first of several testimonies from the unwilling undead. Given the agonized existence of the consciousnesses involved, most people were horrified that these apparently tireless laborers were suffering, not just from looking creepy. Necromancers went even deeper underground in society, still serving those who desired their products, but even with them being scofflaws in many nations, they still had a willing market. This was especially true in places where laws couldn't be as easily enforced, and new frontiers presented such places. The other major places being nations that needed large amounts of infantry overnight, 
Dark castles run by those with an excess supply of bones and poorly supervised graveyards where resentful reanimators might decide to let the residents out for a stroll around their old neighborhoods. The practice also still persisted among the adventuring classes as they were useful if you needed lots of cannon fodder or mobile Halloween decorations, but they still weren't invited to brunch a whole lot. Dunwellmish had already been established before it was Dunwellmish. Another colony had been there in the past. When the Stonecarp expedition landed there and started unearthing the remains of the previous settlement, the remains of a necromantic guild was found. Since necromancers weren't especially popular, the crown had seen fit to allow as many to leave for the New World as they could convince to board a ship. There were many who claimed the use of undead was what saved Dunwellmish from the fate its predecessors had. Others note that those predecessors had undead as well, yet they didn't last long enough to avoid becoming a landfill. Whatever the case, the fact that the creation and use of undead was approved by Lord Stonecarp set the stage for America's more widespread practice of reanimating the deceased. Coupled with a desire to ensconce religious freedom, the colonial churches didn't want to appear to be negging something that was helping to keep the crops coming and defending the walls. A note on the religious freedom thing. This is a really interesting topic that most people don't realize the scope and scale of. If you want a preview of one of the minds behind it and maybe a clue about his true motives, look up Arch Pontifex Quatori, though he's kind of difficult to get good sources on. He wasn't the last person to try their hand at going overseas, empowering a god and trying to use it to conquer the place they'd come from, but he was among the first we know about. Historical tangents are hard to avoid. Sorry about that. So the conflict over soulbound undead came to a head after numerous conflicts between the places in America that came to be known as the West and Farther West. The Farther West saw advantage in creating more undead as they couldn't procreate fast enough to keep up with the expanding frontier and the things living there. Also, as more of their activities involved killing things they encountered, they found themselves in possession of the raw materials needed to make more soldiers and laborers. Or rather, they had more raw materials on hand that weren't formerly them. Or at least a class of formerly them that they liked. After thumbing their nose at the federal government's outlawing of fully sold necromancy, the farther western states seceded and war was more or less declared. The far westerners thought they could just win by sheer numbers, as those who fell in battle were quickly raised back up to fight on their side. This enraged the westerners, who managed to get the five divines, as the major churches called themselves back then, to take a stand on this whole living dead thing and start channeling their power into making the dead remain remains, or make the undead redead. Deaded. You get the idea. This was also when the far farther Westerners arose to lend their aid to the Western Union. In exchange for certain areas being declared sovereign under a kind of complicated commonwealth, elves, dwarves, and an alliance of humanoid sapiens agreed to fight the necromantic far western hordes. When the war was finally declared to be over, bounties were placed on rogue undead, freed by their masters to wreak havoc as a kind of spoiler for losing the war. To this day, there are reports of skeletal soldiers and regiments emerging from hidden caves or graveyards, having been given delayed instructions or set to some other kind of trigger should their territory be trespassed on. It would be almost a hundred years before it was legal to reanimate organic material at all, and never with the binding of a sapient motive force. Even to this day, a lot of people don't trust those who create organic automata, as their coding and instructions have become so complex that it's often difficult to tell the difference between a legal animated skeleton and one run by a very disgruntled soul. Some worry that if such coding becomes too robust, it could result in the creation of a new sapient life force, uh, often referred to as artificial immaculants. As of yet, none of today's constructs have passed the Turing test, which involves them being capable of carrying on a convincing conversation via a spirit board. 
Remnants of the war are still being discovered in various places. Not only were spirits bound to bodies, but also to weapons, buildings, and even articles of clothing. Yeah, they really branched out. One of the more notable attempts at reconciling necroculture with polite society was one Gustav King. He was a necromancer, fully versed in how to make soulbound undead, and he became disturbed with just how terrible unlife was for the souls involved. He reasoned that if pain and torment were worked into the bindings to compel obedience, why couldn't someone make bindings that were enjoyable? He set to work, trying to find patrons for this endeavor when war broke out, making his work a bit more difficult, according to his notes. The reception of his idea fell into a few categories. 1. What if I want them to suffer? I'm not making these things out of people I'd have drinks with. 2. You mean like they'd get a thrill out of being ordered around? That's kind of creepy, even for undead stuff. 3. Please get out of our graveyard and no souvenirs. King discovered that those who had no problem with condemning souls to miserable servitude weren't the sort of people who cared to try any other methods. Those who were more open to the idea weren't all that keen on soul-binding in the first place. This left him with one final pitch. Promise people with access to corpses that, if they were worried the soul that had been inhabiting it was in a very bad afterlife, he could offer a more pleasant alternative. His first client was one Rasbin Aruthabald, a man who sympathized with the far westerner cause and whose brother had perished in the early fighting. While Rasbin couldn't say for certain that his brother was in some kind of place of ironic punishment, he found items among his personal effects that indicated he might have made pacts or bargains with entities he shouldn't have. The remains of Clement Aruthabald were brought to Gustav King, who prepared them according to his new positive necromancy. The results were mixed at best. Clement's corpse animated, but he moved awkwardly. Whenever he tried to say anything, he moaned in a really disturbing way. Gustav described the noise in his notes as reminiscent of those he'd heard when walking by disreputable parts of the city late at night after the taverns had closed. When given writing materials, Clement eventually expressed gratitude at not being in the clutches of a vengeful deity anymore. But he found it difficult to operate his body due to every movement feeling akin to... Well, he got very graphic here, but at least he seemed to be having a good time. Escaping a rather off-put Rasbin who had been hoping for his brother being able to rejoin the war effort and now had an ecstatic corpse to listen to, Gustav went to the Westerners to see if they'd be interested in his research. They found the body of a magician that had expressed a wish to extend his life unnaturally at some point in the future, but had his life cut short during the Battle of the Gateway Graveyard. Adjusting his techniques, Gustav brought Clevis Eldrake back to the side of the Vale, and everything seemed to go well at first. Soon, however, it was evident that Clevis wasn't quite himself, even with the whole being dead thing. He said it felt wrong to not be doing things, and desperately pleaded for tasks to perform. The previous issues with noise had been reduced to contented size, and while it was possible for Clevis to be commanded to do more useful things, it often required someone to keep reinforcing his directives. Otherwise, he became anxious and would seek out someone to tell him what he should be doing. It should be noted that the undead don't need sleep, so the friends and colleagues of Clevis soon found themselves lacking rest as well. Gustav again left abruptly, and Clevis' ultimate fate isn't well documented. The local legend is that a frustrated acquaintance suggests he dig a hole to the other side of the planet, and he hasn't been seen since. The same story predicts that someday magma will start oozing from someone's backyard when Clevis finally breaks through the Earth's mantle. The other notable experiment King performed was an attempt at giving the undead neither pleasure nor pain with their existence, but merely being. Thus, he thought, we might have soul-bound undead that were truly free of coercion, and could be reasoned with, just like any other person, to be a part of society. 
The results of this were again mixed. From what they could tell, someone brought back in this manner did have their soul bound to a previously alive body. Those that were put into this condition pretty much just behaved like dead bodies. A few could be coaxed into proving they could move or speak if they had the flesh to do so, but they gave responses that were along the lines of just five more minutes before returning to a state of not doing much. This arrangement, King wrote, put the soul in a state of cosmic meh, which might be preferable to the more unpleasant afterlives he'd heard of, but wasn't very useful or cost-effective to the practicing necromancer. He continued his experiments, which we'll probably touch on at a later date. What did this have to do with Dunwellmish, you might have asked, about a half an hour ago? It turns out the previous colony had soul-bound undead present to use as labor and guards. A few of these individuals were found buried in a few hidden niches in earth-covered buildings. Callum Stonecarp and a few of the colony officials had decided to give using undead a whirl to see if this was something they'd want to make official colony policy. It was very hard to turn down free labor, especially when it helped prevent starvation, a lack of shelter, and the occasional arrival of something large, very hungry, with far too many teeth. We'll go into specifics next episode, but Stonecarp and others convinced the clergy to help in securing remains for the necromancers to reassemble and uh, motivate. They were already helping heal and resurrect those who had sallied forth to look for adventure, and adventure had found them instead, so having bits of people lying around the place wasn't all that suspicious. Scribe Lennis Caxton eventually found out where the unseen work was coming from that had apparently accomplished so much in so little time at Dunwellmish. We'll see how he and the colonists come to grips with the use of once-alive-again materials to help out around the colony and how their decisions affected the future. I've never seen a bound undead that I know of. I was around for things like the Furby scandal, where it turned out the supposedly mechanical bits were thematically coded materials that they even spray-painted silver to look like metal. They only got found out because one batch used stuff that was a little too fresh and started to smell. There were no souls involved, but even those items being used as toys was too much for most people, and now there's the truth-in-motion laws for machines and consumer products. If you find one at a yard sale, they're worth quite a bit. Just don't pick up any Beanie Babies, because what they made those from... But look, if you find one, look up the number for your local haunted object disposal department and try not to touch it. I knew someone in college who had those things in their room as a kid. And, I mean, at least there was a relief fund, you know? You've been listening to Vorpal History, a look at the fantastical history of the world, which, for all you know, is totally real. Though you shouldn't get your history facts from a podcast, especially one without citations. Get more of this podcast and other great content on the Fantasy Network.